0: I think it's sort of like prevention. You've got to be leading at all times in a way that invites dissent, that says trying to focus on what we have as common goals and being very transparent about why we can't do what maybe wants to be done. And as you said, leading from a real value system of equity, that every voice, every voice matters and acting that way, you know, day in and day out so that When you have the crisis and people get pretty heated and pretty upset, they can still say, Yeah, but you know, like we know her and we've been to her house before, and like, wow, we should at least talk again. And people can stay at the table then, which I always say is our job number one in leadership. We have to create an environment where people want to stay at the table talking, even through the upset, that they're still going to come back and we're still going to be in relationship because the relationship dominates all.
1: Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yalpala, and I go by KP. I am the CEO and co-founder of In On Health. In today's episode, we speak with Elizabeth Bradley, the president of Vassar College, She goes by Betsy and has been in this role since July 2017. Betsy is one of the leading healthcare policy experts in the U.S., including on the topic of social determinants of health. Prior to becoming the president of Vassar, Betsy was on the faculty at Yale for more than 20 years and was most recently the Brady Johnson Professor of Grand Strategy and Faculty Director of the Yale Global Health Leadership Institute. I first got to know Betsy as one of my professors and mentors when I was a student at Yale. Her research has focused on quality of hospital care and large-scale health system strengthening efforts within the U.S. and abroad, including in China, India, Ethiopia, Liberia, Ghana, Rwanda, and the United Kingdom. Betsy has published more than 320 peer-reviewed papers and has co-authored three books. One of these books is called The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More Is Getting Us Less. We will talk to her about this book today. She is the recipient of the William B. Graham Prize for Health Services Research and was elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 2017. Betsy is also a member of the Council of Foreign Affairs. Betsy graduated magna cum laude in economics from Harvard earned an MBA from the University of Chicago, and did her PhD in health economics from Yale University. In this conversation, we discuss topics ranging from her bestseller on social determinants of health to leadership in healthcare and diversity, equity, and inclusion. I hope that you find this conversation as insightful and inspiring as I do. Well, Betsy, it's so great to be with you today. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation and and about all the different work you've been up to. So um, for our listeners, um, we're on today, we have the great privilege to be on with uh, Betsy Bradley, the president of Vassar College, and also one of our nation's leading healthcare experts. So Betsy, thank you for being with us today.
0: Oh, KP, it is so much fun to see you after all these years and uh, just watch your career blossom. It's been terrific. So delighted to have this time with you today.
1: Thanks so much, Betsy. I mean, I think for our listeners, you've had, I think this is a rare opportunity for them to really get a view of the arc of your kind of career and experiences and what led you to now be the president of Vassar. So I kind of want to go through that journey with you today. So to start, I thought you could share a bit about your early career trajectory and what led you to healthcare policy and management.
0: Sure. When I was in college, I actually took a class with Paul Starr, who wrote a fabulous book called The Transformation of American Medicine while I was in his class. So he was doing all the work on that book. And you know, we now know it as a seminal, seminal book. And the class motivated me to really want to get into healthcare. And my first job was actually as a hospital administrator. And at that time, I worked at Massachusetts General Hospital Loved it, was an administrative fellow and then an administrator. And in, I think it was 1990 or 1989, I met Don Berwick, who was an assistant professor at those days at the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Business School. And he was developing quality improvement and what that was. And I just couldn't get enough of it to think, how do we actually provide better quality for everybody with the same resources, that just seemed like a really important thing to do. So I spent um, many years actually at the hospital learning how to do that, very operational, very frontline. And I made a major shift actually that came upon me when it, you know, I was turning about 30. I felt like everything that we were trying to improve in the hospital was getting better, but I would still go home on the T every day and just see the health of Boston, You know, see the homelessness, see, the obesity, see drug use, and just feel like, I don't know, we're making things so much better in the hospital, but is anyone really getting healthier? And that really hit me. It really made me take a shift. It made me say, I need a different kind of education than I've had. And that's when I went to Yale School of Public Health.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. So after, and for those of you listening, I mean, part of how I know Betsy is when I was at Yale, um, she was one of my professors and mentors and you led the health management program there. I think what was really great is you came from this background you described of being a hospital administrator, then going into the theory. So maybe you can help bridge that for us now. like
0: I do think in 1992, the understanding this diametric opposition of better and better in this great elite hospital and really nothing better on the actual streets was an aha moment. And then when I went back to get my PhD, which was in 1992 when I began. My very first class was with David Williams, who was taking a year at Yale at the time, and he taught the sociology of medical care. And I remember the first class when he said, you know, only about 10% of the lives, um, deaths averted are due to medical care, and the rest is due to the social determinants of health. I was like, what? Wait a minute, Wait a <laughs> is that true? Yeah. I'm like questioning this you know, guru in this area. And he said, "Yeah, that's true. You need to read a lot more." And um, I did spend, you know, five years getting my PhD, really understanding how could I use what I had learned in quality improvement, what I had learned in management of how the system works, but how could I use it for a different kind of end, an end that would maybe confer greater health on more people. And and as soon as you have those kinds of questions, you're asking health policy questions.
1: Yeah, no doubt. So I mean, this is interesting because. You know, what I'm hearing from you, and I think this is what's always a nice opportunity when we talk to our leaders is, you know, you have a book that came out called The American Healthcare Paradox on social determinants of health. And we'll get into that in a minute. But it was not just about the U.S., but it was actually a cross-country comparison. But if I recall, that book came out in maybe like 2013. Is that right?
0: 2013.
1: Yep. Yeah. So now you're talking about the seeds of this actually started in 1992. And I think that's very important for people to hear like this is these questions when we really want to unpack them. And, you know, people can dedicate their careers and and their lives to kind of understanding the nuance. So with that kind of frame, maybe you can tell us a bit about this book, The American Healthcare Paradox, and some of its key findings, knowing that this journey started for you kind of in the early 90s, and then you had the seminal work.
0: Sure, and actually there was another pivotal moment for me which happened in um, I think about 2008 when I was asked by the Yale, I guess it was uh, the global health group that was developing at Yale if I would teach an undergraduate course. And so you know, I had been teaching graduate students for a long time but I was asked to teach an undergraduate course and it was really I think the first undergraduate course in health policy. And I called it American Healthcare Policy paradox and promise. And I studied for that, obviously to teach, you know, I had like 200 Yale undergrads in this class, it was very popular. And to study, where did the history come from? You know, it brought me back to first principles about what is public health? What is medicine? How did we get where we are? What are the politics? So that I could teach it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: in that class, um, I actually quickly one night before I had to prepare a class with this hypothesis that if we spent more on the social determinants, maybe we would do better. I quickly got a TA to help me download some quick data, just do, you know, quick and dirty graphs. And when I gave that lecture, I remember the students being like, whoa, that's incredible. And then I went on and taught the rest of the stuff. But later in my time, and I had always thought, you know, those data said something important, but I couldn't develop it. I didn't have time. And it was later um, that I had a TA, um, always it's working with students. I had a TA who was an amazing TA, I think in 2009 or 10. And I said, you know, could we ever go back to that data and really look seriously at it? This is Ben Elkins, who is an administrator now. And we did we published that paper in bmj and that once that paper published then you know someone from the new york times called me and said you think there's any chance you could do an op-ed on this and then i did an op-ed on it and then day after that came out we got a lot of calls to do books and that's where it came from
1: that's incredible and maybe we can unpack the premise so i don't want to oversimplify it but as i understand it at its core the question was why does the us spend so much on healthcare yet comparatively have worse health outcomes than other countries. Is that kind of
0: the core of the question? That's the paradox we're trying to unpack, absolutely.
1: Right, so what did you find? So maybe you can explain, and, and, and I think for folks we'll put this book in the resources as well as the New York Times article.
0: Yep. What we found is, uh, again, as you said before, we looked across the OECD, that is the high income countries, our peer countries, and we looked over three decades of data to understand what are they spending on medical care and what are they spending on the social determinants of health, which we know both theoretically and practically are productive for health. So if you have housing, you're going to be healthier. If you eat well, you're gonna be healthier. Mm -hmm. Education associated with health. So we looked at what countries are spending in those two different buckets. And no one had really done that before because it's hard to get the data on the social side to align. But the OECD data does allow you to do that with some painstaking work. And what we found is in the United States, we end up spending, if you look at both social health, social determinants and medical care, you know, as the whole pile that you're going to spend on people's health, about two thirds of that in the United States is spent on medical care, and about one third on social care. And if we go to the top-performing countries, like in Scandinavia, Germany, etc., it's just the opposite. They spend sort of one third on the medical care and two thirds on the social determinants. So the hypothesis is, and really the data suggests that. If we want to, for the same amount of money, get better health outcomes, we really have to deal with this social determinant side, and we're probably spending the wrong portfolio. We're investing in the not the best places to, if we really care about those public health outcomes.
1: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And in terms of solutions, I mean, I guess with every country, there's a different. There are different models for how we fund healthcare and fund these social kind of elements, and I think. Even before the pandemic, we were starting to see some of the large payers like Kaiser and others start to launch their own SDOH-oriented programs outside of the context of federal or state government. But how do you see that, you know, in terms of what could work in the U.S. to start to move the needle on this issue?
0: Well, in the U.S., what we have going for us is we're really innovative when we are at a local level. So what you just said, having a Kaiser take this up or certain counties, Henneman County in Minnesota, you know, they have really innovated to take up how do we deal with homelessness and housing and health all under the same budget? How do we allow Medicaid, for instance, to actually be used to pay for um, food? that Mm -hmm. is not medicine, but it's food, which is just about as important as medicine. And of course you need a lot of controls on that so that you are monitoring what people are spending the money on and you can't do it just frivolously. But we have seen innovations in the United States on this, as long as it's at a local level. Mm -hmm. What we found in traveling um, you know, to Western Europe and Scandinavia is many of these countries that have been very successful have processes where they get the public together to debate over how much of the budget, national budget will be spent on the social side, how much will be spent on medical care, and they look at them together as trade-offs, because they really are. Right. We don't really have that kind of situation in the US, and in fact, you could never get at the federal level an omnibus act around all those social investments, and the medical investments that would be called communism here, and people would right. not do it.
1: People wouldn't do that.
0: They wouldn't do it. But at a local level, you can have such exciting things happen in towns, or in companies, or in counties, and and we do see some of that. So, I remain, you know, somewhat hopeful. I think it was a lot easier under the ACA, where there were some financing schemes that promoted people to look at these kinds of innovations. But I think it's in. Um, Many insurance companies, many companies' best interests. So I think it will emerge naturally.
1: Okay, great. Because I was going to ask, kind of, how do you see where we are? So from 2013 to now, we're in 2022. Like as as this premise came out in your book, and you look at the state of play in the U.S. now, as we're kind of moving through the pandemic, where do you where do you think we are? I mean, it, are we at a place where we're just seeing a spattering of of activities, or do you, do you see a movement happening, or not yet?
0: You know, I feel like in 2013 and when our book came out, we were asked all the time to go to Washington and speak with um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Studies, They services they were trying to innovate around implications from our book. The um, ACA was really aligned with it and there was a lot of momentum. I do think the change in the administration put us back. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that has happened in the U.S., which makes it very hard to make progress now is this polarization politically and racially. And by all kinds, and by COVID, look at the the disparate experiences of COVID those kinds of splits that we've had in our country make it so much harder to think about the whole. It makes it much easier just to get what you need and move on and not really think of the social side of your health. Now, COVID, I think, did give us an opportunity because suddenly my health determines your health now, and we're a little more socially and collectively sharing resources. Um, But I don't know, the way we've responded to it doesn't give me a whole lot of hope that we're in a movement yet. Mm -hmm. I think we're in a lot of creative experiments, but they haven't been catalyzed into a single movement.
1: Mm -hmm. As I'm hearing you, one thing that comes to mind that we're seeing across the country, locally and nationally, is the acknowledgement of our behavioral health crisis. Yes. And the intersectionality of our behavioral health challenges with homelessness, with these elements and you know as I hear you I I think that maybe this behavioral health element might be one way that this moves because there's there's those intersectionalities.
0: Yeah. Yes. And there's no question that a lot of the traumas that are related to homelessness or not enough food um, or really poor educational facilities or lack of social support really play themselves out in mental health and isolation. So I do think when we face our behavioral health issues, we will have to face their root causes, which are often social in nature. They're not they're not for lack of medicine, they're for lack of uh, secure support structures
1: mm-hmm, and safety net structures and those things. Um, exactly. Um, so I want to switch gears a bit. I mean, you, in your work, um, outside of the context of social determinants of health, I mean, some people may know you in the in the field of grand strategy, and also in the areas of just kind of leadership in the healthcare context. Um, so, you know, clearly coming through this pandemic has strained, to say the least, you know, put tremendous strain on leaders from all different domains, right? Political, corporate, community, policy, and others. Um, and in many ways, it just feels like the pressure of the pandemic has kind of stretched our social fabric to the brink, right? You're working on a chapter in a new book on leadership in healthcare, and the focus is on organizational resilience. I'm really curious to hear about some of your reflections on on that theme as, as, as you've been kind of, you know, looking at this pandemic through the lens of your various experiences and roles.
0: Yeah, in the time of the pandemic, and of course we're still in it, but I hope we're getting towards the end of at least the pandemic phase most organizations, whether they were hospitals or colleges or nursing homes or school, you know, K through 12 schools, faced absolute crises, that's it. And the Mm -hmm. leadership of these institutions had to get good at what's really known as resilience. How do I sustain our institutional mission in the face of, for many of us, potentially existential threats? If you have a residential, Educational program and it's not safe for people to live near each other anymore in the dorms together. How do you how do you get through that? So the chapter that um, I wrote with a colleague of mine um, Professor uh, Alamo Pastrana here at Vassar is really about Vassar's journey and tries to locate it in the literature on organizational resilience and we find and discuss quite a few characteristics of institutions that have been able to weather the storm And one of the most, I mean, there are many, many of these, but just to maybe focus on one or two, I think one of the most important things is, and it ties to grand strategy, you've got the people who have the roles that are the leadership roles, and you have the people who are on the front line. The most important issue and the most important sort of way leadership comes about is it is born of the relationship between those two groups and letting the information flow quickly and accurately between what might be the strategists who are making the leadership decisions and the frontline who are, in fact, implementing what's happening. And the resilient organization has buffers everywhere. So as one gets information from the frontline, there are quick ways to get that to the leadership team. Mm -hmm. At Vassar, we created something called Vassar Together, which was a committee made up of frontline staff and up to our senior officers, a committee of about 25 people, who we would set the framework at the senior level and then Vassar Together would figure out how to implement it, because it's one thing to have good ideas about how you're going to test everybody or how you're going to isolate people in hospitals if they get COVID positive. It's another thing to do it in a way that's supportive, not carceral, that Mm -hmm. makes you feel more like a collective, not like you're splitting us and them. We actually were on campus the entire time through the pandemic. We did not have to send people home, which is kind of unheard of for a liberal arts college, but we were able to do it.
1: Mm -hmm. And knowing that you're, you know, a leader who leads, understanding the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and understanding that for this type of construct that you've just kind of described in leadership and kind of in interpersonal interactions, we talk about this construct of constructive versus destructive conflict, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I'm actually very curious about is, as you kind of frame this, is how do you maintain the voices of everyone in the room in a constructive conflict type of way where people are able to maybe agree to disagree in certain places, but find common purpose. So I think the pandemic really um, tested, I think a lot of us in that domain because there are so many different viewpoints about what to do in a highly uncertain scenario.
0: Such an important area for leadership and for all of us. I think one piece of the answer to this is you can't wait until the pandemic to have those conversations. And that's what's tricky. You've got to be leading all the time in a way where you know people, where people know you, where you've invited dissent, where you've had already a thousand conversations about race and racial inequality on campus before all of this, so that when something like COVID happens and it triggers like all the disparities and um, people of color experience it different from people who are white, and here I am a white leader, how are they going to feel comfortable coming to me? Only because the relationship was predated the COVID crisis. So I think it's sort of like prevention. You've got to be leading at all times in a way that invites dissent, that says trying to focus on what we have as common goals and being very transparent about why we can't do what maybe wants to be done. And as you said, leading from a real value system of equity, that every voice, every voice matters. and. Acting that way, you know, day in and day out, so that when you have the crisis, you know, and people get pretty heated and pretty upset, they can still say, Yeah, but, you know, like we know her and we've been to her house before, and like, Mm -hmm. wow, we should at least talk again. And people can stay at the table then, which I always say is our job number one in leadership. We have to create an environment where people want to stay at the table talking, even through the upset, that they're still going to come back and we're still going to be in relationship because the relationship dominates all.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's another sub thing, sub theme I want to draw out that I'm hearing from you, which is also this construct of common purpose. So it also making sure that everybody is aligned to the same common goal, because that's another way to cut through if you have that trust.
0: We have um, something on campus that's called engaged pluralism, where we work very hard to create an environment where we can have pluralistic ideas and we don't segregate people and we don't assimilate people, but we engage with the pluralism. And that's a common goal. You know, it's not concrete. It's an aspiration. But, you know, it's something that we can align around and say, look, We didn't do that in a very engaged pluralism way, did we? Okay, well, we better step back and try to do it better the next time. And it's definitely not that we don't have problems. We have tons of problems, but I think that we have a lot of resilience to keep working at it when we do have a problem.
1: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you've kind of laid this out in terms of some of the journey of you, your staff, and we haven't talked about students yet, but at least you and your staff and some of the people on campus trying to work your way through the different phases of this pandemic this has been terrible for everybody. It's been a hard, hard, hard issue, but is any silver linings or anything that you see that has come out of this in, in a positive light?
0: There really are. Um, it's funny, I'm just writing my graduation remarks and I'm, so okay. I have this on my mind because right. we don't want to just be depressed all graduation. Here's one thing that I think really has shifted and I hope it's shifted more broadly than just at Vassar, but I've really seen it here. We had a mantra during the pandemic and it was called, we precedes me. And the students really came up with it. And we just used it all the time. Like, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice because we precedes me, remember? And it's really hard as a young adult. We've all been there between 18 and 22 to actually think of everybody else before you think about yourself. (laughs) It's a tough thing. But They were able to do it and they saw the reward. The reward was they were able to stay on campus and we didn't have to shut down, Mm -hmm. which they want desperately to be with their friends, of course. And so my great hope is this empathy for each other, this attentiveness to accessibility for all will sustain under this we precedes me and that will have been a cultural positive cultural shift away from some of the canceling and polarization that is natural in our younger adults to something that's more inclusive, truly, mm-hmm. and more resilient and more equitable.
1: Right. And that they carry that through with them as they move on into the next phase of their life. Interesting. So, so as the leader of Vassar College, what do you see students focused on in terms of the intersection of social justice and healthcare, and What's on the minds of young adults right now with everything going on? So many issues.
0: Well, you raised it earlier, massively on the minds of young adults is mental health. And there's just no question about that. They look at mental health differently. Every single student understands, You know, I absolutely should be able to access counseling. I absolutely should be able to access services that will help me if I learn differently ways in which I can socially not be isolated and that and I love this and they know they deserve that. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're looking for from an institution. So that's very important. I think a second thing they're really looking at is social justice and they want the institutions that they're aligned with to promote what their values in social justice are from what they're going to wear as clothing to what kind of makeup they're going to use to what food they're going to eat to what college they're going to go to. They want to see that we are supporting carbon neutrality, that we are working hard on racial equity. And I think it is such a great generation for that. It is tremendous to work with these young adults because they are really, really committed to a better world, even knowing that there are just so many challenges ahead. But it's sincere with them. And I've seen students absolutely walk away from classes, walk away from talks, walk away from companies who have offered them jobs because, you know, they don't like the investment practices of the company or they don't like the way the company is built, what its history was. And I think that's really admirable.
1: Mm -hmm. And I've seen as I was preparing for our conversation that Vassar has established a partnership with the Columbia School, Millman School of Public Health. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think that's quite interesting and given the the current context.
0: Yes. Well, when I first got to Vassar, Dean Linda Freed from Columbia and I had coffee and she said, your Vassar students are great. You know, how can we, how could we do something? How do we get more? So we developed a BAMPH program here where you enroll at Vassar and then in your junior year, you apply to the MPH program at Columbia. And if you're accepted, you take your fall semester of senior year at Columbia, one semester. Then you finish your degree back at in um, Vassar for your senior year. Then you take one more year, so your fifth year, for the MPH at Columbia. So in five years, you get a BA and an MPH. And these students have loved it. And I understand from the Columbia faculty, they feel the Vassar students are very Precocious and are well prepared because we do so much social justice work here. And certainly that's all part of public health that they're, they're very ready for that. But it is a wonderful program and really growing public health, both I think at the college and helping us be more impactful with master's degrees.
1: Well, that's brilliant, too, because a lot of young people also are thinking about the cost of education, right? And yes. for those going in the field of public health, like the the type of income they might be looking forward to, you know, having that extra year of cost could be hard. So reducing that year and then empowering them not long after university to be able to go and, and have that professional degree sounds uh, really, really good. It's a good program, no question about it. Great. So, we've been talking about the theme of leadership a bit, kind of woven throughout this conversation. And, you know, for our listeners who are sitting in various types of roles um, in the healthcare industry or public health, what types of skills, values, leadership do you think really can make a difference in transforming our healthcare system? Because you know, some, somehow the things we're discussing need to become operationalized. And in some cases, there might be more tactical moves. And in other cases, it's really about vision and establishing a longer term approach. So what would you advise folks in terms of these types of skills, values, leadership principles that can help them on their journey?
0: a big question, KP. You know, I have to I, I have a few thoughts. Of course, everybody has to make their own way. I'm a big believer in that. You gotta look deep in your heart and your soul and what you like and find your place because there is a place for everyone. So, you know, that's key. But I would say for me, it's important to develop some kind of technical expertise. Whatever it is, you don't have to It doesn't have to be computer science. It doesn't have to be biology. It doesn't have to be medicine. It has to be something that you understand the frontline operation technically. You haven't just like skimmed the surface and then made it to a top position. Those are the people in leadership who really get in trouble because they just don't have the instinct and they don't have the relationships with people who are doing the work every day. So, you know, first, second, third, fourth job should be like frontline. You really know what the work is. So I think that's really critical. I then think that as one gets into greater leadership roles, I think empathy is just so important. What I mean by empathy is that you can understand what people who maybe report to you are thinking, what your clients are thinking, what your donors are thinking, and you can feel it so that it motivates you to get through the really, really hard times. And I think without that sense of empathy, it's very hard To make the right decisions you know because at the end of the day it is about relationships so if you don't have that sort of emotional connection i think it's um super super hard i would actually advocate for a third area that i think is super important of what you had said earlier is the ability to keep the end in mind always. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, as a college president, I mean, you just get knocked off your, um, you know, your chair constantly with buffeted by this and by that and the regulations. I mean, you're just in the thick of it. But being able to set some kind of goal or vision on the horizon and use mindfulness or whatever you can to keep that front and center and remind people okay, but the reason I can't do that is we're going towards this goal, remember? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're trying to be engaged pluralistically. So I can't advocate for this thing you want me to advocate for because it doesn't fit with the long... That really is important, keeping that end in mind. And I think it, it helps one stay sane. While I'm saying this, I do just have one other thing. If you are in leadership, you really need to care about that end goal and you need to not care whether you're popular or whether you're well-liked. You do the best you can for the institution, for the people you serve. That's it. That's the focus. And, you know, you hope everything else works out. And if it doesn't, you know, maybe someone else should be doing that job. So I try to I try to remember that, which is tough.
1: Well, that's amazing. You've really covered a lot of things succinctly there and critical themes. Um, I really, really appreciate that. One thing that stands out to me as I hear you is on this theme of empathy. Um, When we talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, I think sometimes it gets lost that actually at the heart of DEI is empathy, right? And I think, you know, we talk about health equity and reducing disparities as what should be in our health system. We should not have disparities. Like we want everyone to kind of maximize their full health potential. But the flip side of that is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is really showing up with empathy and diversity at the table. And understanding that though we have our differences, we can work towards that common objective. And I think oftentimes our DER conversations get into box checking or quotas or things that lose sight of that aspiration. I really appreciate you framing the theme of empathy because it's critical.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think so often DEI work also can get um, very brittle where you're right, we can check boxes, but also people can kind of go to their corner and this is who they exactly. are and no one else under. And that, you know, you can understand it. Again, it's good to empathize with that instinct. But at the end of the day, you've got to find a softer spot where you can try to come back to the table and at least talk with each other.
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, so I ask every guest this question at the end of a... Uh, A conversation, and I get varying answers, but you know, I'm curious, why are you, Betsy, in on health equity?
0: I mean, I just believe so wholeheartedly that health equity is fundamental to having a peaceful democracy that is fair. It's the best way to have a society. It's you cannot flourish in life without health. And if we're inequitable in that, who are we? You know, we're just not uh, a society I really want to be part of. At least I want to be working constantly to think, you know, everybody should be able to have the opportunity to flourish. So I don't know. I don't have anything more erudite than that to say. It's in my gut.
1: Oh, well, I really appreciate that. And it's clear you've been working on this for a lifetime. And, um, you're an inspiration to, to many of us that have had the chance to work closely with you and to see how you've used your leadership positions to train others, to, to advocate for policy. And uh, we really appreciate having you uh, on the conversation in this podcast today.
0: Thanks so much, KP. And I do have one more piece of advice for everyone listening. You've got to find students that are as talented as KP and never lose track of them because they will open just incredible doors to your life, things you could never predict. Uh, I still remember asking KP, do you think I should do global health? And he said, yeah, you should do it. And that had an influence on me. So KP, I so appreciate everything that you've done as well.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Betsy. Uh Appreciate you as well and uh, wishing you the best on your journey at Vassar. And we'll make sure to share the resources discussed um, in the podcast notes. So have a great day.
0: You too. Take care.
1: Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.